Amen. We do thank our veterans. I want to I wanna just invite any of our veterans who are with us this morning, would you please stand as we uh, want to have an opportunity to acknowledge you. If you have served our nation and our armed forces, we've got a bunch upstairs as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, we are truly blessed, and uh, we don't take the sacrifice and service of uh, those of you who have uh, given a lot for our country. We thank you so much. And uh, we know that there are even people uh, today from our church who are serving uh, our nation. I think of uh, James Taylor, who we prayed for, who is uh, in the Middle East just recently, one of our worship team members uh, on, a, I believe, a six-month deployment. We're praying for James uh, and so many of you who have served. And we're grateful and uh, we thank the Lord that he has blessed our nation with uh, the freedoms that we have. Uh, there's a lot of pastors around the world that don't get to stand in front of a large congregation like this and have the freedom to open God's word and, and proclaim it faithfully. And uh, that's, uh, that's one of the blessings that we have because of the sacrifices of our veterans. So uh, if you see a veteran today or tomorrow, especially on Veterans Day, make sure to extend your thankfulness to them and uh, let them know that they are very much loved and appreciated. So thanks again. Well, as I mentioned, today we're coming to the end of our series in the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, I know over the last few weeks, many of you have uh, expressed to me just how much you've appreciated this series. Um, I personally have been extremely surprised uh, by how much I've even enjoyed uh, this series. I knew this past summer when I was looking uh, looking ahead to teaching this book, that uh, it was going to be a, a very interesting and exciting book. But uh, every week, God has been opening up his word and his truth to me. And so uh, when you thank me at the back door, uh, oftentimes I'm thinking, man, I got just as much out of this this week as, uh, as hopefully you did. Uh, God has been so good. And uh, Solomon's wisdom has a lot to say to us. And uh, today, again, I think we're going to see that as we come to the end and Solomon puts on this final uh, exclamation point to the message that he shared with us. I'll never forget my freshman year of college going to visit my best friend's dad, who was laying in a hospice bed as he was dying of lung cancer. This was a man who I grew up with uh, from the time I was a toddler. He was a man who was like a, a second father to me. Uh, his son was my best friend growing up, and over the years we had played uh, Little League sports together uh, all the way from the time we were eight years old up through high school. Uh, his dad had coached us on many teams. Uh, he had just been a, a really significant influence in my life. He was one of those guys who was, uh, was a real tough guy. Uh, he grew up in New York, you know, and he was the typical, stereotypical New York tough guy. And uh, I remember, you know, many times he, uh, you know, just encouraging my, my friend and I in sports and, you know, telling us to, you know, tough it out when we were laying on the ground getting beat in a football game, you know, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. And, you know, his encouragement often uh, made a significant difference in our lives. He wasn't a follower of Jesus. Uh, all those years growing up, uh, he never embraced Jesus as his Savior and Lord, even though uh, as a result of the influence of our family in their family's life, uh, most of their kids ended up coming to faith in Christ. And uh, this man was always very supportive of his kids being involved in church with us, and he was encouraged by their walk with the Lord, but he himself had never proclaimed faith in Jesus. 
But it was interesting at the end of his life as he was dying of lung cancer. He was a lifelong smoker. Those final weeks, my dad had the opportunity to go and visit with him uh, almost uh, on a daily basis, uh, reading the word to him, sharing the gospel with him, uh, sharing apologetic reasons for why we believe what we believe as Christians. And my friend's father ultimately did put his trust in Jesus for his salvation uh, before he passed away. But it was interesting, the opportunity that I had to go and visit him as he lay in his hospice bed. You know, here was this guy who I had looked up to and admired my whole life, this, this tough guy, this macho guy, who was now this frail man withering away in a hospital bed. And I remember thinking just what a tragedy it was because... Where he was as a young man at the time, I believe, maybe in his early 50s when he passed away, it didn't have to be like that. You see, years and years ago, his doctors had warned him about the dangers of smoking. Years and years earlier, his doctors had told him, you need to give up the cigarettes. They're not good for you. They're going to lead to bad things down the road. Years earlier... After ignoring his doctor's wisdom on the cigarettes, when he developed a cough and went into the doctor again for a consultation, the doctor said, you need to quit the smoking. This is a sign of bad things to come. And my father's friend continued to go on in his addiction, in his habit. A few years before he died, he went to the doctor again. His cough had gotten worse, and the doctor took x-rays and discovered spots on his lungs. Doctor said, we need to treat this, and you got to stop smoking, and here's what we're going to do to hopefully prolong your life. And once again, he chose to ignore the doctor's counsel. And here he was as a young man dying of a disease that could have been completely avoided had he followed his doctor's guidance over those many years. You know, as I thought about my friend's dad this past week, it struck me that today as we come to the end of our series in the book of Ecclesiastes, we find ourselves in a situation not too different from that of my, fa- my friend's father. You see, throughout our series in the book of Ecclesiastes these past two months, Solomon has diagnosed for us the reality of our spiritual condition as human beings. Solomon has diagnosed our condition as being one where we are prone to live in rebellion against God. God has shown us the way to joy, the path that leads to life and and fullness of life. And yet, as we've seen each week in our series, we are so often quick to turn our back on God's guidance and do life the way that we want to do it, the way that we know or think is best. And Solomon says that when we choose to live our life in rebellion against God, the Bible uses the term sin for that rebellion, choosing to ignore our holy, righteous God and do life our way. Solomon says that we can pursue all of the things that this world has to offer, looking for meaning and purpose and joy. But in our rebellion against God, he has repeatedly pointed out to us that it's all vanity. In the end, everything All the world has to offer apart from God is vanity, a breath, a mist, a vapor, here one minute, gone the next. It's all meaningless. 
And Solomon has not only described our spiritual condition, but he has also prescribed for us a remedy to this condition. A remedy that leads to true joy, to true life. And the remedy that we've seen repeatedly declared over and over again, Solomon has pointed us to the fear of the Lord as the way to remedy our spiritual rebellion. To to turn from the error of our ways and pursuing the vain things of this world and to find true life and true joy in walking in a faithful relationship with God. That's the remedy. That's the cure for our condition. But the question that we're faced with, with this morning as we come to the end of our series, the question that we have to ask ourselves is simply this. Are we going to embrace God's counsel? Are we going to listen to the remedy that Solomon has shared with us? Are we going to turn to God and fear the Lord and keep his commandments? Or are we going to continue to do life our way? You know, sadly, far too many people in our world, even in our churches, choose to ignore the guidance that Solomon has shared with us. Like the patient who blows off their doctor's diagnosis, many people today hear the word of God, but then tragically they choose to dismiss it. Some dismiss it because they deem it irrelevant. Some because they don't care. Some think they can get along fine without it. And yet others simply don't want to submit to anyone else's authority. They want to be the boss. They want to have control over their own life. But friends, at the end of the day, the bottom line is this. In doing that, you're choosing your way over God's way. And remember, as we've seen numerous times throughout this series, Solomon describes that kind of person as a fool. You're a fool to choose your way over God's way. In another one of Solomon's writings, he puts it like this, Proverbs 14, verse 12. He says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. There's two paths in life, friends. The the path that leads to joy and life to the full, following God and his will and plan for our lives. And there's a path of rebellion, choosing against God, that ultimately leads to death. Jesus talked about this himself in John 10.10. He says, the thief, the enemy, the devil, he comes to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and life abundantly. See, it's the fool, Solomon says, who chooses against God. The wise person, on the other hand, as Solomon has repeatedly declared, fears God. And in fearing God, the wise will experience real life. Life as God intended, a life of fullness and joy. And now today, as we wrap up our series in Ecclesiastes, as I said earlier, Solomon is going to put one final exclamation point on the wisdom that he shared with us the past two months. You see, Solomon wants us to see very clearly today the choice that's before each of us. And it's the ultimate choice, friends. It's a choice that each and every one of us has to make. Are we going to do life our way or are we going to do life God's way? This morning, we find ourselves in the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. 
I want to read our passage for us this morning, and then I want to come back and highlight three observations from Solomon's closing wisdom here today. Starting in verse 9. Solomon, in this autobiographical wrapping up of his whole book, he says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and of much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Solomon makes some astounding claims in these few simple verses. Here in verses 9 through 14, Solomon tells us that he has given us, over the last two months as we've studied the book of Ecclesiastes, he has given us three things we need on the journey to joy, the journey to experience life to the full as God intended The the first thing that Solomon reports to us that he's given us here in our series in in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says that he has revealed to us words of truth. Words of truth. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Now, friends, that's an important observation for us to recognize this morning. What we have been studying here in the book of Ecclesiastes and Solomon's collective wisdom in his various proverbial sayings that we have looked at are words of truth. Now you need to understand that when the Bible talks about truth, the Bible often implies something very different from what many people in our culture today think of when they hear the word truth. You see, when the Bible talks about truth, the Bible is talking about the way things really are. In other words, that which corresponds to reality. You see, the Bible declares that there is something called objective truth. Absolute truth. It's truth that exists independently from whatever you think or believe personally. It's truth that exists that finds its root and origin in God. And this truth can be known and discovered if we pursue it. And so the Bible says that there is a truth that exists, a truth that can be known, a truth that corresponds to reality, the way things really are. But you see, our culture often embraces a very different view of truth. See, our culture's view of truth today is one where truth is often subjective and therefore relative. What does it mean that truth is subjective? Well, friends, subjective truth is simply a truth that we define personally. Truth is whatever we say it is. And so individuals and societies and people groups determine for themselves what is true. This is often known as the philosophy of relativism or or postmodernism. You might have heard that term. 
It's the idea that your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. What's true for you is true for you and what's true for me is true for me. And we all determine truth for ourselves. Now, friends, these are two very different views of truth. One says there is truth that exists independently of whatever we personally think or believe. There's truth that is a correspondence to the way things really are. A truth as defined by God. And then there's a truth that, no, we choose what is right or wrong, what is good or evil, what is true or false. Those are two very different views of truth. One of the ways that might be helpful to understand this is the difference between donuts and diseases. This morning when I was walking into church, I noticed that our children's ministry team uh, had had their early morning prayer gathering and they had a big box of donuts there. And our children's ministry volunteers were all picking through the donuts, you know. Some people were picking uh, cream-filled donuts. Some people were picking chocolate donuts. Some people were picking glazed donuts. Some people were picking donut holes. Friends, it didn't really matter what particular donut they chose because they were just choosing donuts. It was their own personal subjective opinion. And at the end of the day, there's not a lot of consequence in the type of donut you choose. Maybe a few different calories here or there, you know what I'm saying? See, when you talk about donuts, you can choose what works for you. But what if we start talking about the reality of diseases? For example, what if this week you get a phone call from your doctor and your doctor says, you know, we ran some lab tests and we discovered you have a disease called diabetes. And your doctor says, before you get too concerned, there's a remedy for your disease. We want to have you start taking insulin to help Remedy the disease that you have. Now, friends, when your doctor tells you you have a disease and then diagnoses the remedy, at this point, your choice and how you respond really matters. You're no longer picking and choosing between your personal subjective preferences. You don't say to your doctor, yeah, you know, doctor, I'm not a big fan of insulin. How about, uh, how about that triaminic cough syrup my mom used to give me as a kid? That was really good. See, when you talk about donuts, you can pick and choose what works for you. When you talk about diseases, you have to pick and choose from what heals, what remedies your condition. And there are many people in our world today who look at matters of truth and religion and morality more like donuts than diseases. But when God talks about truth in his word, he is talking about it like we think when we think of diseases and remedies, objective truth, truths that matter, truths that make a difference in our lives. Two things we need to recognize today about our culture's view of truth, this this postmodern relativistic understanding of truth. What can we say as Christians in response to this? Well, number one, it's important that we recognize that this postmodern view of truth is ultimately self-defeating. And what does that mean? Well, friends, it's an argument that is inherently contradictory to say that truth is relative, truth is subjective, it's your own personal preference. You know, the next time you hear somebody say something like that, you know, truth is relative or your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, let me just encourage you, ask them a simple question. Are you sure about that? And when they reply, absolutely, well, friends, do you see the problem? You see, to even affirm relativism, you have to make an absolute truth claim. 
To say that truth is relative is itself an absolute truth statement. And so it's inherently a self-contradictory position. I remember when I was in seminary working on my master's degree, I had to read a 500-page philosophy textbook written by a postmodern philosopher, and the entire textbook was an argument for the relativism of truth. That truth is relative. It's, It's dependent on what we personally, subjectively want it to be. And he spent 500 pages arguing that truth is relative. And I thought to myself, this is so silly. If he really believed this, he wouldn't spend 500 pages writing a textbook trying to prove it to me. You see, it's an inherently self-contradictory position. Uh, A second thing that's wrong with this postmodern view of truth is that it's simply inconsistent with reality. You know, friends, we live in a world today where culture tells us that people are free to choose their own truth. I mean, think about that. Our world says to people, you can choose your own truth. What's true for you? Even if that choice contradicts the very norms of nature and logic. I could share hundreds of examples of this with you. For example, two weeks ago, this individual, Rachel McKinnon, won the world championships of indoor women's track cycling for the second year in a row. Pretty big accomplishment. The best indoor track cyclist in the world. But what you might not know is that the individual pictured here, who's now named Rachel, is a transgender woman who was once named Robert. This is an individual who was born as a man, has all the genetics of a man, who lived as a man until the age of 29 and is now winning championships in women's track cycling because Robert deemed that his truth is that he is really a woman. Another example I saw this past week, some of you know the famous Hollywood actress Emma Emma Watson. Emma Watson was on a TV show this past week, and they were asking her about her current relationship status. And Emma Watson was explaining how she's currently single, but she doesn't like to use the terminology of being single. She prefers to identify as a woman who is self-partnered. She's self-partnered. Now, friends, go home today and look those two words up in your dictionary. (laughs) Self-partnered. You see, our culture has embraced a view of truth that leads to absurdity. It leads to nonsense. And then we wonder why we have so much confusion and turmoil and brokenness in our world today. You see, friends, the truth matters. And so when Solomon declares that he has written words of truth, you need to understand he's not talking about donuts here this morning. He's talking about something far more consequential. He's talking about the way things really are. He's talking about the spiritual disease our world is infected with, our rebellion against God, a world, as Paul says in Romans 8, that is groaning under the bondage of sin, waiting to be liberated from its decay. And he's talking about the remedy for that disease, the fear of the Lord. See, friends, Solomon's words are no mere opinion about where joy is found. They are words of truth. 
Solomon next goes on to tell us in our passage this morning, not only are they words from truth that he's revealed, but they are words from God. They are words from God. And friends, this is incredibly important for us to understand this morning. Solomon says, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. They are given by one shepherd. I can just imagine King Solomon thinking back to his childhood as a little boy, walking along the hills outside of Jerusalem with his father, the shepherd king, King David. And King David pointing to the flocks of sheep on the hillsides, saying to Solomon, Solomon, the Lord is our shepherd. And Solomon probably remembered those teachings of his father. We have one true shepherd. And throughout the Old Testament, God is repeatedly affirmed as our good shepherd. And so when Solomon says that these words that he has shared with us come from one shepherd, he is referring to the one and only true shepherd who reveals truth to his people. And that's our creator, God. You see, friends, all truth ultimately finds its origin in God. He is the fountainhead of truth. We can only know truth because God, our creator, has revealed truth to us. One of the ways that God has revealed truth to us is in his inspired word, the Holy Bible. The Bible repeatedly affirms that it is the inspired word of our creator, God. This is not simply the words or the visions or the sayings of mere mortal men. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, the Apostle Paul declares that all Scripture is breathed out by God. In the Greek, that's, that word is theonoustos, it's God-breathed. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What, what does it mean that the Scriptures were inspired by God? Well, well, Peter, in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, he declares, know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, okay, right here, this stuff, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. In other words, again, this isn't the wisdom of mere mortals. This isn't what some random guy wanted you to believe based on his personal subjective opinion. Rather, Peter says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, it was the Holy Spirit that inspired the divine word that we study here every Sunday morning. The great Christian apologist Walter Martin once explained this process in, in a similar way to the Virgin Mary. And just like the Holy Spirit came upon the Virgin Mary in her humanness, in her sin, in her imperfections, in her limitations, the Holy Spirit came upon the Virgin Mary to produce within her the perfect Son of God. In the same way, the Holy Spirit came upon the authors of Scripture. And in spite of their limitations, in spite of their imperfections, in spite of their fallenness and sin, God moved through them by the power of the Holy Spirit to bring to us his perfect word. But how do we know this is really true? I mean, it's one thing to read these verses, but how do we know that Scripture really is inspired by God? Well, friends, there are a lot of different reasons for why I believe the Scriptures are the inspired word of God. 
We could talk this morning about the hundreds of fulfilled prophecies. We could talk about the archaeological verifications for the teachings that we see throughout the Bible. We could talk about the Bible's historic and scientific accuracy. We could go through all kinds of arguments for why the Bible truly is the inspired Word of God. But this morning, let me just share with you one powerful example. The unity of Scripture. The unity of Scripture is, in my opinion, the greatest evidence for the inspiration of the Bible. You see, many people mistakenly believe that the Bible is simply just a single book. Well, well, we know, obviously, that the Bible is not just a single book. It's a collection of books. We call it the canon of Scripture, the collection of Scripture. But this canon of Scripture is truly remarkable. Look at what we have here in the Bible, friends. 66 different books written by 40 different authors over a 1,500-year period in three different languages on three different continents. And yet, within this amazing collection of books, we find a common storyline, a common theme, a common message our fallenness, God's love and his redemptive plan of salvation. That storyline and theme runs consistent from beginning to end without error or contradiction anywhere within its pages. Now, friends, if you don't think that's truly remarkable, let me give you a challenge. It's a challenge I've given people all over the world. Later this spring, I'm going to be going back to the University of California, Berkeley with my friend Sean McDowell. A few years ago, I remember as I was witnessing to students on the, on the lawn there at UC Berkeley, I gave this Bible challenge to numerous students. I said, hey, you guys have a huge library here at UC Berkeley. Let, let me give you a challenge. If you don't think the Bible is something special, here's what I want you to do. Go down to your library. I mean, one of the largest libraries in America. And you pick for me any 66 books... They can be books written by 40 different authors. You can choose any 1,500-year period in history. You can choose books from three different languages written on three different continents. But here's the challenge. You find a collection of books that matches this criteria that has a common theme and storyline throughout them without any errors or contradictions between them anywhere. Friends, every single one of those students looked at me and said, well, that's impossible. And it is impossible for any human collection of books. But we're not talking about a human collection of books here. We're talking about the inspired word of God, God's truth. Friends, Solomon tells us that he has revealed truth, truth that comes from God. And he goes on in verse 11, he says, The words, the wise, these words of truth that come from God are like goads. They're like nails firmly fixed. Friends, I'll tell you, one of my greatest privileges as a pastor is preaching God's word to you every Sunday morning. Because I get to declare words of truth from God that are like nails hammered into a wall where you can hang your life on those truths with certainty, with assurance, with confidence. Solomon says the words of truth that God has given us are like goads. What's a goad, friend? It's a cattle prod. Those, those uh, cattle ranchers, they have to prod those cattle to keep them going. They have to poke them sometimes to keep them going. And you know what? Sometimes God's word prods us and it pokes us and it moves us in directions that we don't want to naturally go on our humanness and our rebellion. But he goads us because he knows it's the path that leads to life. 
These are words of truth. They're words from God. Thirdly, Solomon tells us this morning that they are words for life. And this is the most important part of this entire message. They are words for life. Throughout our series, throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has diagnosed our problem, our rebellion against God, our sinfulness, pursuing the things of the world apart from our Creator. That's our problem, friends. But Solomon hasn't left us without hope. How good is it this morning to have hope? Man, hope changes everything. I remember five years ago when my wife was diagnosed with cancer, sitting in that oncologist's office, and man, it was brutal. 30 minutes hearing about my wife's cancer. Kim, you have a lump. Stage three, borderline stage four. You got 20 lymph nodes filled with cancer in your neck. The outlook doesn't look very good. And I remember our hearts just sinking within us. But then our doctor gave us hope. Kim, we're going to treat this. There's a path that leads to life at the end. Friends, those words of hope meant the world to us. And we followed the doctor's guidance. We followed that course of treatment. And in the same way, here in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has given us a path to hope, a path to life. Verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That phrase in verse 13 literally reads, this is the whole of man. In other words, friends, humanity was made to fear God and keep his commandments. Please understand this. Apart from God, nothing in life truly matters. Apart from God, everything is ultimately meaningless and absurd. Apart from our creator, everything you do in life is just vanity. Why? Because your days under the sun are quick and meaningless. Here today, gone tomorrow, you are a mist, a vapor. But with God, with God, everything matters. Everything we do in life is of eternal, ultimate consequence because there is a creator God to whom we are accountable. Solomon ends our passage, our entire series, by telling us God will bring about every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so fear God and keep his commandments. That's the remedy. One day, a day of judgment is coming where we will stand before God. And he will ask you, he will ask you, and this is the ultimate choice all of us are faced with as we conclude our series this morning. Did you choose to do life your way or God's way? Did you live your life fearing the Lord and keeping his commandments? Or did you think you knew better than God? And so you can go on living your life any way you please. See, friends, that's the ultimate choice. That's everything that Solomon has been driving us towards in this series in Ecclesiastes. The question is, what choice have you made? Which path are you walking? Where do you find yourself today on the journey to joy? Walking faithfully in God's ways or doing life the way you think is best? Solomon's given us words of truth, words from God, words for life.
Friends, my prayer for you is that you will heed Solomon's guidance. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this series that we've had the privilege of journeying through together these past months. We thank you for the wisdom Solomon has given us. Wisdom that, as we've seen today, was not of his own, but it was truth from you. Lord, help us to apply your truth to our hearts. Help us to take your word and your guidance seriously. Help us each this morning to examine our own lives and our own hearts and ask ourselves, Lord, am I doing my life according to my wisdom or am I doing my life according to your wisdom? Am I living it my way or your way, Lord? And God, as we examine our hearts, if we see anything within ourselves that looks to be of our own making, of our own choosing, of our own wisdom, Lord, may we repent of that. May we call it what it is, sin and rebellion against you. And may we once again fall into your loving arms of amazing grace and receive forgiveness and restoration. And may we be set back on the path that leads to life, the path of fearing God and keeping your commandments. Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Friends, would you please rise for our benediction this morning? (laughs) Parting words today that I think are very fitting as a way to conclude our series. Solomon's words in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Trust in the Lord. God bless your friends.